Come by here, ancestors, with your fire and fierceness, your protection and peace, your music and laughter. Come by here, with your life-affirming principles and your destiny-shaping words. Come by here, where we aim to expand our existence, further our mission, all in the name of what is right and real and good. Come by here, ancestors where you are welcome. That's a poem by Sunny Patterson that was posted on her Instagram page. And Oya Amakizi, our guest today, reposted it on her page. I love that poem. I think it's so apropos as we are in the time when the veil between the living and the spirit world is thinner because we're getting closer to Scorpio season, which deals with spirituality and going deep. Earlier this month on Instagram and Facebook, I sent a message to a friend whose mother had passed. I mentioned Dia de los Muertos as a way to offer comfort to her. The post said, your mother left the world, but not you. The Day of the Dead, which is another, which is the English word or translation for Dia de los Muertos. Day of the Dead originated with the Aztec culture and is now a Mexican tradition. Each year at the beginning of November, the living celebrate loved ones who have passed on. This day is becoming more mainstream with local municipalities sponsoring public events. It is a tradition of the Americas that predates U.S. culture. Africans also have traditions to honor those who have passed into another realm of existence. While I am not initiated into Ifa, which is the Yoruba spiritual practice that honors ancestors as a part of it, I have done some research and I'm really interested in the role that Ifa is playing in the ascension of people on this planet right now. It is a spiritual presence among African Americans, and therefore it is part of our collective culture. On Center Her Power podcast, we delve into many mainstream or not-so-mainstream spiritual practices. You may hear of a practice you want to add to your spiritual tool belt, so please do. You can listen to Center Her Power podcast on Anchor or Spotify or... um, Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can go to my website and listen at www.centerherpower. And if you go to the website, please subscribe so that I can stay in touch with you. Also, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast with those that you know or even those you don't. You can share it on Facebook, like, subscribe, write a review. And do all the things for podcasts. Also, you can leave a donation if you'd like to help us further the work. My guest today is Oya Amakizi. As an intuitive, creative thinker, Pan-African nationalist, activist, and passionate defender of human rights, Oya Amakizi's work has spanned diverse platforms ranging from reparations, food and environmental justice, uplifting girls' and women's rights, youth development, advocating for political prisoners or prisoners of war, to challenging police and extrajudicial murder. 
She has used art and activism as a tool to heal, educate, and empower by collaboratively working with the community to find solutions on a local, national, and international level for over 30 years. Amakizi is the founder and executive director of the Detroit Women of Color International Film Festival. Oyaya and I are working on a grant with the Wisdom Institute called Passing the Torch, Preserving the Flame. This this program is so um, representative of our shared commitment to remembering our ancestors and being of service in the community. Under that grant, we're going to be taking women's ways using art and dance and herbalism and other ways that women have shared with the community to organize and create social and political power so that we can make our lives better. Also, I just wanted to to let you know, in case you, well, whenever you listen to this, you'll be able to still use the information. On October 28th, today is October 27th, on October 28th, 2021, I will be doing a Instagram live interview with the second, with the other daughter of Oya, who I am interviewing during this time when um, death and being close to those who have passed away is is more prevalent. It's, it's really interesting that these two daughters of Oya and Oya is connected in um, some way, I'm not sure about all the specifics, but she's connected to the transition between life and death. So I'll be doing an interview on Instagram, a live interview at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on my Instagram page, which is Center Her Power Podcast, Center Her Power Podcast. Even if you miss the live um, broadcast, you can still go to my my um, page and listen to the interview. Thea Monier, Thea Monier will be talking about her book, Blood and Bahareke, which um, was spiritually channeled to her. And she'll also talk more about her um, role as a priestess of Oya. So be sure you check that out. Now, on to the interview. Yes, that was Sunny Patterson. She's out of New Orleans. And my prayers are with her and her family and the people of NOLA right now who were impacted by Hurricane Ida. Um, but she is um, a daughter of Oshun um, and deeply spiritual sister. And she uses poetry um, almost as a ritual. And she speaks life into the world, but she also speaks so, um, you know, change is uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, um, and she reframed um, the hurricane uh, in terms of um, how it impacts the people and how they relate to it and how they survive it. And they have for centuries, actually. Uh, it's not a new thing. Uh, the the level or the strength of it um, has definitely increased due to climate change, but um, the impact that it has and how it impact how it, how the people deal with it has always been from a space of resilience, of deep roots, 
an ancestral connection. And she acknowledges that and um, in that particular poem, it just resonated with me deeply. What did it bring up for you? Well, I am a daughter of Oya and um, through my ancestral work, I feel a very deep connection um, with her. Um, and my ancestors have always been there guiding me, protecting me. I feel their strength. I feel their presence in my life. Um, even when I'm being hard headed or <laughs> I'm in danger of myself, they have been there to hold me up and to pull me through. And so, um, what I know to be true, cause, um, I have family from New Orleans, um, and from that I know to be true is that um, they are strong people and that that ancestral connection, that understanding that we have been through so much worse and still made it through. Man-made and um, exasperated by weather or climate, no matter what, we have always made it through and they will make it through this. And I'm so grateful um, that it did not have the same impact that it had during Katrina. That I still st sticks with me. I still pray for those people, you know, those brothers and sisters who had to leave and whose land was taken, uh, who are still dealing with gentrification and, um, you know, imminent domain and inequities in the system that are used against them. They are still a resilient people, and I know that they'll make it through this. They're without power right now, um, and I'm praying that this will be an opportunity to create something new through solar energy, through other opportunities, that they sidestep the government who's not working in their favor and make them cooperate, <laughs> and that they get the support and love they need um, as we go, you know, as we move forward in time, they'll be okay. But just that those prayers and financial support and sharing of resources and understanding and fighting for climate change in a better world, that's how we, we support them. You are an activist, it seems, at heart. Did you, were you raised to be an activist? Yes. <laughs> So um, my mother worked at the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association um, in Highland Park, Michigan. Uh, and my father told her, if you want to work, that you have to take the baby with you. So she started in the nursery and worked her way up through the positions over the years. And, um, and the YWCA at that time was very politically active. Uh, Joanne Watson was on the board, um, the Honorable uh, Nana Mama Joanne Watson was on the board of the YWCA. Um, we had a women's shelter upstairs, so women who were escaping domestic violence uh, were able to find a safe space at the center. So as a, at a very young age, I knew to sign them in that secrets were sacred and not to share people's information. Um, we had an Olympic um, uh, martial artist, gold medal martial artist, black woman as my one of my martial arts teachers. <laughs> we had um, 
amazing teachers, um, but also political movements. So they helped to run political campaigns to put women in office, um, went into the community and provided opportunities for young people, um, helped, you know, single mothers and young families to thrive during a very tumultuous time where uh, the factories were laying people off and families were suffering. Um, they worked with uh, YBI, the Young Boys Incorporated, which was a notorious uh, gang at the time. But yeah, my brother, um, including was in, the my brother was in Young Boys Incorporated. Okay, my so brother my, who is now an ancestor. Oh, Ashe. And so uh, they were incorporating uh, positive programming and getting them involved in that, doing something positive for the community. And so I just thought that's pretty much what women did. They were powerful. <laughs> like, it was like, women don't have limits. You know, uh, they worked, they thrived, they did yoga, they read a lot, they studied, they created art. I was, you know, I did gymnastics, everything I wanted to do. My mother created that opportunity through the YWCA at that time. And so it shaped the way I thought of myself. And they even had a program called the Y Teens, which was community, uh, young community activists. So we did work in the community. We work with young people at the Y. And that shaped me as an activist because I didn't know how not to be a part of the community or feel responsible to my people, you know, and, and she, in addition to that, she homeschooled me, um, on the side. So I went to traditional school, but at home, my mother had a full library. So I was reading, uh, the writings of Bloxon. I was reading Vincent Harding. I was reading, um, W.E.B. Du Bois. I was reading, uh, Booker T. Washington. And I was learning about Malcolm X and the writings of Martin and other important, uh, figures in history and women as well. Um, and so Ida B. Wells Barnett, Mary Church Terrell, all of these figures, Shirley Chisholm, all these things. My mother had a full education from me outside of school. And I had to write reports. I had to understand what role that they play in our community. And then we had conversations about, you know, what is our role um, in society? You know, I think when we are raised with a certain value system, for, for most of us, it continues. And I think because you're, you're a person who's so in tune with community and so in tune with your um, ancestors and histories, I, I think that really shapes how, it seems like it really shapes how you interact with your genealogical research. Is, would you say that that's true? Absolutely. Um, we're all connected. I, you know, even though my mother did not call it an African framework, that's the framework in which we lived. My, I am first generation born um, up north. My parents are born in the south, in uh, the rural parts too, <laughs> in Conway, outside of Conway, in Pine Bluff, and in Fawnsdale, Alabama, Marengo County. And so there is, um, a connection of family and community and seeing African people and black people as family, you know, um, and understanding, as I said, as she was teaching me about those political and historical figures, 
the understanding was they are a part of me, that I'm responsible to them, just like they put their lives on the line for us, that uh, we are responsible to them by being our best and highest self. And so I carry that into my genealogy research and um, the deeper I go into it, the more real that becomes. So tell me, how did you start? So I've done a DNA test and from and then I've, I've gone and, and tried to and I've started to put in a family tree and in my mother's family, there's a book where where there's some information that was gathered. What I don't really know is who the people were. Like I can say names, which which is good, but I, I you know, and I I can say which parts of the world, mostly Africa, my ancestors are from, or where my my DNA is from, but it doesn't really say who the people are. And one of the things you mentioned to me was that you can have ancestors whose DNA does not show up in a DNA test. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So every person has two copies of a human genome. We receive 23 uh, chromosomes from our mother and our father. They're randomly picked genetically. They're randomly picked. Our siblings also inherit that from our, our same parents, set of parents, but they may receive different DNA <laughs> from them as well. And so out of three sets of siblings, you can have a very different uh, DNA or what do they say? The um, eth ethnic uh, breakdown of your DNA that they show on like ancestry or family tree DNA or 23andMe. So you could, you could have the exact same parents, but your ethnic background can be slightly different based on percentages. <clears throat> You may inherit, excuse me, from some distant great-grandparent and another sibling may not, right? Now that ancestor may have been indigenous and the DNA tests, uh, traditional um, autosomal DNA tests, autosomal DNA is one of my words, <laughs> uh, where it, it does both parents, um, it, it may go only so far, right? So a couple, you know, several generations back in terms of that test. Now, when you get into your mitochondrial DNA where it chases your mother's line or your Y DNA where the male, males in your family, it traces the men in their line, you may go back further, right? Um, but it's, it still only goes back so far <clears throat> in terms of, who you can recognize as your DNA matches. Then it becomes so large of a sample that it really doesn't, um, it's not useful in your research. Um, so um, I have indigenous ancestry on both sides of my family. Um, some of it is documented. Some are, you know, um, however, um, how much I inherited is much smaller so I am 87% um, African. A little less, a little less than that. But close. I like to say that much. <laughs> uh, a little bit more European than I want to discuss. But it's just real. It's just life. Um, and in a small percentage of 
uh, indigenous ancestry. However, when I do my mitochondrial test, you definitely see more uh, indigenous ancestry. And they even tell you where it came from. It came from, of course, the United States, the southern part of the United States, as well as it shows in the Caribbean and in Dominica. You know, my um, MTD, mitochondrial maternal DNA, is in haplogroup B. And initially, when my cousin did the test through African ancestry, they said, oh, no, this is not even this is not even from Africa initially. And then um, I did a test with through um, family tree DNA and found that um, my haplogroup is actually from Madagascar. So I'm really interested in, in, in working to connect with those ancestors from Madagascar. Most of the DNA matches that I've gotten on the, on the site are from my father's side. So clearly I must have gotten more DNA from, from his side. And, and the, the, the haplogroup shows up in a really small percentage in Southern Africa, a little bit Asian, but it's a very, very small percentage. And I really want to connect with, with my uh, Malagasy roots. So I'm in this Facebook group called Malagasy Roots. They contacted me when I tested through Family Tree DNA, and, and they have shared a lot of great information, and, and I still have not been able to find anyone who is descended from um, that grandmother, that great-grandmother. And I really would, would love to. And then my father actually, my father's family talks about, they have an oral story saying that they have a female ancestor who was um, from Madagascar, was brought to Virginia and sold into, um, and, and was enslaved. Um, on my father's side, though, I have a cousin who said, yeah, we did the test, but it doesn't show up anything. And, you know, it doesn't, you know. But, you know, it was interesting that, once they had said it doesn't show up, then I tested positive for the um, well, not positive, but I tested for haplogroup B, which is which is one of the DNA groups in in Madagascar, and it's also one of the 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 haplogroup, the broad haplogroup, is one of the groups that is found in the indigenous peoples of the Americas. It's also found in Taiwan, in um, New Zealand, in I think there's some in Japan, and it's in Central America, South America haplogroup B, my particular um, delineation is, is similar to a Polynesian motif, but actually is from Madagascar. And I would love to see if I can find out more about that. What, what, what do you say? Do you have any, anything you could share about that? How I could, might be able to find out more information? I know well, this is putting you on the uh, spot, so if you don't, don't, don't worry about it. Sure. So there are um, groups that are online, as you said, you one connected with you that um, really break that down and go into uh, migration maps. And um, <laughs> I have mixed feelings about it um, because as descendants of an enslaved people who were human trafficked, we have so many ancestors, right? Uh, it's easy to pick one. I have, a, you know, a lot, a lot of people I know have 
a large percentage of Nigerian ancestry, right? It'll say in the 30s. It does for me as well. Um, many family members and friends and people that when I look at my DNA matches, you get to see their ethnicity um, background. And you also see large percentages from certain areas. And I think I shared this with you before. Um, there are many factors that go into that, right? So when you think about how far we we're talking about, so you have yourself, then you have your grandparents. So that's four sets, your parents, then your grandparents, that's four sets of people. Then you get into eight sets of people. Then you get into 16 Then you get into 32. Then you get into 64. That's a lot of people, right? That's so then you people. start going back, right. And you start going back even further, especially uh, during the 16, 1700s, then that's even more people. So you may have one ancestor from Madagascar, you know, <laughs> or a couple. It could be even a couple, but you also have them from Ghana. You also, modern, what we call modern day Ghana, uh, or uh, Nigeria, or um, the Congo, or, you know, Cote d'Ivoire. So many of so many of our ancestors, you think about what we're comprised of, when you see all those people, when you envision that, um, it's empowering to know that we are truly an African people. At the same time, you feel scattered too, and you want to connect to something that helps us identify ourselves beyond the terrorism that our ancestors faced on this land. We are so much more than that. But as you try to trace your individual family, it could become overwhelming as you go deeper and deeper into it. You can't focus on one particular or a couple of particular ancestors, but as I said, it starts getting into 32 people, 64 people. And, you know, and that's in addition to all those others that we just counted. That's a lot of people to, to say just Madagascar. And I had to remind myself because I was like, I'm Nigerian, you know, <laughs> like, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I always felt a connection to that land. I feel a very deep connection to the Igbo people as well as the Yoruba people. But it's a land in which itself used to be the, the empire of Benin. They used, you know, the the artificial uh, geographical um, boundaries that we have today didn't exist back then. How they defined themselves, how those people moved around and were transported and the impact of losing so many Africans from that space and who filled that space in and who we are today compared to who they were back then is so many factors. Um, I say embrace Madagascar, claim it. Um, if it resonates with your spirit, that's the ancestor that's calling out to you. It's not the only, it, it's not the only one. And one of the reasons why I'm really interested in Madagascar is because I also read that it's believed that people with haplogroup B are descended from Lemuria. And I know I have a connection to Lemuria and that, you know, I've, I've, lived or am also living if you believe that we're living multiple lives at the same time that that that's a place where I, I have lived and that 
and it's and part of what I'm bringing to this life is um, to understand some of the wisdom and to, and to share some of the wisdom of Lemuria. I also feel like I um, had a life in the Axum Empire, which was um, Ye- Yemen, Northern Africa, and, and they they in at times it was actually including parts of India and Ethiopia. So it. All that that doesn't show up in my DNA, but I feel a connection to it, and I def also have a lot of um, Nigerian DNA as well as Ghanaian, South African, um, Angolan, and and I guess you're right. We we so want to be able to say, okay, I'm from there. I'm you know, I'm <laughs> claim well, claim me. I'm from there, and the reality is, and I and I'm so glad you pointed it out. The reality is, we are a unique people we have had a unique experience and we are a a a conflation of so many different experiences and dna groups and cultures and and it shows up in the united states and as as we are interested in different cultural beliefs and you know ways of dressing ways of um um, engaging in spiritual practice so that's one thing then the other thing, so, you know, I don't know, I, I, so I, I've done some research about Madagascar, but I, I feel like I get stuck when I get to, like, my ancestors who were enslaved, which for me is not that many generations. My, oh my, my maternal grandfather was enslaved. So, uh, no, my maternal great-grandfather my maternal mm-hmm. great-grandfather. On my father's side, my grandfather was born in the 1870s. So mm-hmm. the next person who um, who we believe was um, fought in the Civil War, I mean, I have some information about him, but I don't have the names of his parents. Do you have any idea about how I might be able to find? I know you posted something about some ancestors that you had found who had you know who you had gone somehow been been able to to get beyond um 1870 when the census started and and find some more information well i've been doing genealogy research since i was around 13 years old (laughs) have you really that is so phenomenal so thank you so in my family passing those stories along about our ancestors is very important Um, who we are, where we came from, um, remembering the names of our grandparents, great-great-grandparents, and their stories and their experiences with them have been passed down for generations. And so um, I just, it really fascinated me, especially after I saw Roots. (laughs) I was, um, I don't know, I was a little girl, um, but it deeply impacted me. And I really needed to understand, first of all, why did they do that to us? And um, talking about human trafficking uh, and the terrorism that our ancestors faced. And then secondly, like, where did we come from? And so my mother would buy as many books as possible. That's a part of my, as I told you, my secondary homeschooling to help me answer those questions. And we would look for that together. But my grandmother and her sisters and um, the elders in my family, I spent a lot of time with them. So I wanted to know their stories. Who were you when you were my age? 
what were your parents like? What were your grandparents like? You know, and then I started um, actually recording those stories. So by the time I was, my father died when I was 13 and I decided to take it more seriously. So um, I was in an honors program. I would do my my fulfill my syllabus early, just do all my work. And then I would just skip school because it wasn't um, challenging me. I would skip school and go to the Burton library, Burton room at the Detroit main library. Uh, and I, and, you know, I think about that now. They never were like, uh, aren't you supposed to be in school? The librarians were so happy to see me. And so I work with Microfish, um, read historical records about the areas in which my ancestors lived. Um, they helped me with the sound decks. I would write letters to different townships and they helped me through that whole process. I also interviewed my elders and my family. So my, my great grandfather was still alive. He was born in 1899. Um, I interviewed all my grandparents and got information about their grandparents and parents, their parents and grandparents, uh, and recorded it and saved it. I interviewed aunts and uncles who still lived in the South. Um, my family shared pictures and records and I went to, you know, I looked at maps. I, I mean, <laughs> I did intense research as a young person, uh, and, um, lost all of that in a fire. And so um, when I tell you um, that was devastating for me. I'm sure. So was, I had to I'm put sure that on the shelf for a minute. Thank you. And when I returned, um, my studies had changed totally. I mean, I had full access to Ancestry.com. <laughs> it was a whole different world than sitting at a machine uh, trying to get the microfish, microfiche uh, inside the um the equipment correctly so you can turn the spool and going through it, you know, um, page by page or going to certain pages. Um, this was different. I was able to navigate online and um, really uh, easily accumulate a lot of the information I had before. I was able to see where I made flaws. I had access to more microfish. We didn't have to order it from out of state or, you know, <laughs> or borrow or call a different township. So I was able to go back um, very far. I was also able to fix mistakes, right? So there are assumptions because families tend to have similar names. People tend to name their children uh, after their parents, grandparents, sometimes after themselves. So they think it's a new thing for women to name their daughters after themselves, excuse me, but that is not new. They did that <laughs> for, for centuries. Um, and for uh, children to name their their children after their mother. So you may have cousins who all are, you know, multiple carries in a family. In my family, um, I share with you that my... Um, my great-grandfather and his brother um, and his sister named their children all the same names. And so my great-grandfather my great and his brother lived in the same small town in Conway. Their children went to the same school and they were born close to each other. So you can imagine Ralph Lee and Ralph Lee. <laughs> right. uh, same family line, same school, same neighborhood. They didn't live far from each other. Two Dorothys, you know, you know, multiple carries within a family. And my family continues to do that today, uh, to name each other same names. My niece, um, 
she has her uh her name is Shamir. She named her daughter Shamir. My sister um had um her daughter um named all her daughters after my sister. My sister's name was Donna. So my niece named her children Shadana, Don Shadre, and Donna. These are all sisters. <laughs> and so um when you're looking at algorithms and they're looking as at location, you're looking at time frames, you're looking at names, you're looking at family nines, and you're looking at DNA. If you don't know, you may assume that your your cousin was really your your uncle. You know, if you don't if you don't have the information. So it's a combination of DNA, of records, of interviews, and really trying to um take slow down and learn your family. And every time I find somebody new, it feels like I hit the lottery. Thank you for listening to In the Center of Her Power podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like or subscribe on whatever listening service you use. I am your host, Sanaa Green, and I sincerely hope you were fed with divine feminine soul food.